Well, what a special, special day. I got a uh, call from Tyler LaFoy a couple of weeks ago, and he told me about y'all's plans today and asked me could I come speak, and I said, well, Tyler, I'd be honored to come, but I said, uh, that sounds like a pretty big event y'all are planning and so forth. I, I said, I would think y'all would want a, a big-name preacher to come preach on that day. And he said, well, Mr. Dolan, he said, we would, but said we forgot to budget for it, so we had to go the cheap route, and we wondered if you could come speak for us. So anyway, I told him, yeah, I'm nothing but a bullpen pastor anyway, so I'm glad to, uh, to get the nod. But I guess about 10 years ago, since it's been 10 years, uh, Vicky and I realized that the church we were attending and that, that our time was up there and it was time for us to hunt a new fellowship. And quite honestly, I, I had been a Gideon. I was a Gideon at the time. And so I had spoken a lot of churches for the Gideons around town. And actually, I, I pretty much had my mind set on two churches that I'd spoken in. I liked the way they were. I liked their style. And I uh, was fairly close to their pastors, and, and I figured that's, we would, we would, I had pretty made up my mind, we'd end up in one of those two churches. Well, my former pastor and his wife and Vicky and I went out to uh, eat one Friday night, and on the way home, he uh, said, uh, I know y'all going to be looking for a church. Did y'all know there was a new church in town? I said, no, sir. And he, so he told us uh, how to go on the uh, website and look it up, gave me that, the, uh, address so forth and uh, so uh, that night when we got back to the house after eating with them I, I got on the computer and pulled it up and sure enough there it was Safe Haven Church and the opening page on that website had a bald headed guy in the middle and I don't remember how many on the side of them but they were walking in the entrance of the Cobb Theater and I couldn't figure out when I looked at it I said I don't know if these guys were trying to emulate Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and his bunch as they go into the OK Corral, or if they were a, uh, a band of some kind that couldn't figure out whether they was country or rock. But uh, that's what I remember about it. And of course, uh, I scrolled down through it and, and read some of the things it had to say. And uh, I looked at Vicky and I said, uh, what, do you, what do you think? You got any interest in this church? She said, well, I don't know. You know, what do you think? I said, I said, well, let's Let's at least put it in the mix. Well, in the meanwhile, Deb Terry, who uh, at the time was the children's director at Safe Haven, she had uh, been a member of the church where I was at and knew my pastor, and, and he, I think he maybe had contacted her or something. And so she called, and that was on a Friday. That was Friday night when I looked at the website. Well, the next day they were going to have a block party at the uh, Tatable Primary. And so they invited us to come down. Now, this, this, is, this is before school started back, folks. It's hot. I mean, man, it was hot. And they were, I got down there, and, they, and these nuts was putting up games and blow-ups and everything out on that hot pavement at Table Primary. And uh, I met the bald-headed wide herp and still wasn't sure about him and uh, some of the others I met. But, uh, but we stayed as long as we could stand it and, you know, got hot, and, uh, and we went home. And we decided that uh, we would go ahead and visit uh, that church in the theater the, that, that Sunday. Well, you know, we didn't, I didn't wear coats and ties to the church I'd been going to, but it, we, we usually dressed business casual, so I had on my dress pants and a polo and 
dressed loafers and so forth. And I, sh- I should have known something was up. When I walked into church, I saw folks in shorts and flip-flops and this and that. And uh, I, I ought have known what was up. Well, anyway, I, we, we came to the theater, and we got about halfway down to, the, to where the theater entrance was they was worshiping in. And Deb Terry walked up to me, grabbed me by the arm, and said, i got to have a man with the kids this morning. I said, okay. So... Uh, we went down to the theater where the kids were. There was about 20, 25 youngins, and she told a Bible story and taught them a little bit. And what I didn't know was going to be involved is those blow-ups they'd had at that block party were outside at the end of the theater, blown up. And so about halfway through the service time, we took those kids, me and Deb took those kids out and had to play with them and police them in that blow-up. Now, when I tell you we got through, everything I had on was wet. (laughs) I mean, everything I had on was wet. And when we got home that day from church, I told Vicki, I said, well, they won't pull that on me again. (laughs) Next Sunday, I came in my shorts and T-shirts. I wasn't quite ready for the flip-flops, but I I came prepared the next Sunday. Well, anyway, to make a long story short, I came to that church three Sundays before they let me loose to go in and hear that bald-headed preacher. <laughs> and Vicki and I never looked any further. We saw the love of the Lord and the leadership. We saw it was a church that wanted to serve, and we knew we were home. And it's been a great 10 years. I only, have, I only have one burr under my saddle about our time in the theater. You know, uh, this church, which I, I'm glad you do that, and, and, and we continue to do that down south, but this church preaches through books of the Bible at a time, verse by verse, which I am now convinced that's the only way to, to, to go through the Word. And So we hadn't been there too awful long, maybe a couple of months or something like that, maybe three and a Pastor Troy asked me to preach for him one Sunday. And I did and was grateful for the opportunity. Well, after that, every time we went through a book of the Bible, he would go ahead and plan on having me preach one time, two times, three times, depending on, you know, how big the book was and how many Sundays it took. For every book we went through in a theater except for one, we went through the book, The Song of Solomon. Now, if you know the Song of Solomon, it has somewhat of an intimate, erotic, and I'll leave it at that, nature to it. And I got all excited, and I started looking. I said, I wonder what, I wonder what passage he's going to put me on. And I never got the call. <laughs> Didn't get to preach one time through the whole book Song of Solomon. Now, folks, granted, at the time, I was the oldest male covenant partner we had, but I wasn't dead. <laughs> and I'm, I got a daughter sitting here this morning. I know that, you know, that's proof I knew a little bit about the subject matter. <laughs> you know, what your leadership has done today has a biblical precedence to it. The Lord had the nation of Israel set aside several times during their year when they would celebrate some act of God's faithfulness that he had done 
to deliver them. But there was a twofold purpose to that. It was not just to celebrate God's faithfulness, but it was to remind them of his covenant he had made with them, which basically was, I am your God, and I will be faithful to you, and I will bless you, but you must remain faithful to me or pay the consequences. And so today is a day about celebration, but it's also a time of commitment. And so in what little bit of time we have together today, I want us to look at the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Our focal verses will be verses 5 through 8. And let me go ahead. I know in this church there are several pastors here this morning. I know there's some seminarians. I know there's some... Bible gurus that have come since I left. I know all that. And I know that, you know, that uh, you're supposed to do a thorough exegesis of the passage and build the context and all that. Well, we don't have time for that this morning, okay? So my building of the context is going to be simply this, that the book of Philippians is a, it, it is a celebrative letter. It's the most intimate letter that Paul wrote to any of his churches. He introduces himself as a servant in all the other letters to the churches except Romans, he introduces himself as an apostle because he needs the authority to correct a false doctrine or address a problem that's going on in church. But in this book, he identifies himself as a servant. We don't have time to read through it, but if you read through the first chapter, you would see he's very grateful for these people. They have a very close relationship. Some scholars think that it was his favorite church. I don't know that I buy that, but, but they did have a very close relationship. But then in chapter 2, he begins to change from his remarks about their gratitude for them and that celebrative nature, and he begins to call them to commitment. And I don't have time to read verse 1, but let's pick, let's pick up in verse 2, and at least let me read that as an introduction to our focus verses. So the apostle says, complete my joy, my joy. The theme of the book is joy and rejoicing. A number of times you'll see those, those words. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now that's a pretty tall order. Because I don't know about you, but my default, my natural default is to look to the interest of Dolan rather than to look to the interest of others. So how do we do that? How do, how do we reach that point as a church, as followers of Christ? How do we have that goal to look out for the interest of others as much as ourselves. Well, the apostle says, I'm glad you asked, and he says in verse 5 this, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. The Greek term translated in English mind there is a term that means to have an attitude or to form an opinion. I like the way, this is one time I like the NASB translation, it says, have this attitude in yourselves, 
which was also in Christ Jesus. And the message says this, Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. So what is it in the mind of Christ? What do we see revealed in this passage in the mind of Christ that would help us have that kind of attitude? Well, this is not exhaustive, but I'm, I'm going to point out three for, for the setting we're in today. First of all is this, that Jesus knew his identity. He knew who he was. Look at verse 6. Talking about Jesus, it says, Who though he was in the form of God, that word form means essence, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't have to grasp, folks. Some translations use other terms, but he didn't have to grasp for equality with God. He knew who he was. He knew he was the Son of God. He was the second person of Godhead. John opens up his gospel in verse, chapter 1, verse 1, says this, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word, that, that logos is referring to Christ. And Jesus himself said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. In fact, that statement, and that fact that Jesus knew who he was, and he, he consistently brought that out in his teaching. And although it was God's will that he ended up on the cross, that statement, I and the Father are one, is that which the Jews ultimately accused him of being blasphemy and put him on the cross. But Jesus knew who he was. Now, what's the significance to us? Because if we're going to be faithful servants, if we're going to have that attitude of looking out for the interest of others, then we need to know who we are. Now, we certainly don't have time today because the New Testament is full of teachings about our identity in Christ. It'd it take a year's worth of preaching to preach through all that. But I want to point out three, three identities we have here this morning that we need to know if we're going to continue to be faithful servants. The first is this. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. E everyone here today is a sinner. The reality is some of us are forgiven sinners and some of us are not. But the bad news is the Bible, of the Bible is this, that we've all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. There's not a man or woman born since Adam that has not missed the mark of God. Sometimes, and I know you've probably had this too, but it seems to me like the predominant view when you ask folks, at least in this part of the country, if they're, if they, if they're a Christian, if they're whatever terminology you might use, almost nine times out of ten, the response I get is, well, I, I, I think I'm a pretty good fellow. I, I try to live a good life. I, I, I try to take care of my family and do this and that. And that's good. You should. But, folks, that in and of itself misses the mark. Because, you see, God doesn't grade on a curve. Some, some people are living life, and they, and, they, and they realize and they will admit that, that, that there's a God and they think when they stand before him that God's going to look at their life and compare their life to somebody else's. And if they're at that top echelon, you know, they're going to be in fellowship. No, no. God's standard is perfection. God transcends our understanding of being good. When the Bible says God is holy, folks, it sets him apart from all his creation. 
And so the bad news is that we've sinned, and the bad news gets worse because the Bible says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And that verse is not just talking about physical death, folks. That, that verse is referring to spiritual death. See, if you're, if you're here today and you never have trusted Christ, your sin separates you from God just like physical death separates you from those that you love. And the bad news is there's nothing in and of yourself, there's nothing in and of myself that I can do to close that gap between me and a holy God. No good works, no amount of going to church, no amount of praying, no amount of being a good citizen. Nothing can close that gap. Now, that's the bad news. But the good news is this. The second part of Romans 6, 23 says this. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, if you're going to come to God, there's only one, one way to get there. And that's to accept the free gift that he offers in Christ. And it is free. You know, sometimes around Christmas time, I, I'm guilty of it, I'm sure you are too, but sometimes around Christmas time when my kids were little, I would bait them at Christmas time. And I'd say, okay, if you want Santa Claus to bring you this or that, then you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to do good in school, you're going to have to be this or that. Well, what's with that? I mean, if you've got to work for it and earn it, is it really a gift? No, it's a paycheck. And that's the way you become a Christian. That's the way you become accepted by God. God has done all through His Son Jesus what needs to be done for your sins to be forgiven. And all He asks is you accept His free gift. Now, what's that got to do with today for us who are believers? Well, listen, if we, if we don't forget, if we can realize and remember, folks, that we're sinners just saved by the grace of God, that the only reason we're not doomed to eternity in hell without Without Christ, it's by God's grace. But we're sinners. The ground is level. So why should I think any more of myself than I do my fellow believer? I mean, their sin may be different from mine, but it's still sin, is it not? We're sinners. But not only are we sinners, the Bible says we're sons and daughters. Romans 14 15 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And, and ladies, that term son there is gender neutral. It means children, really. And so it's male or female. Now, what's the significance of that? Because we should look out for the interest of each other. If we're family, should we not? I mean, isn't that what family does? Doesn't family look out for each other? I thought about it as I was thinking about that day. I was thinking about back when I was real small and I was in kindergarten. And my, I have a brother. Some of you know my brother. And if you saw him today, he's, he's as tall as I am and a whole lot bigger than I am. But when I was in kindergarten, he's four years younger. I mean, he was a little old bitty squirt. I mean, nothing, you know. And I can remember in kindergarten being in class one day and we were in he was in kindergarten too, and, and we were in separate rooms. And when they brought his group through our room, I guess to go to the cafeteria or something, I don't know what the deal was. Oh, he was squalling. I mean, he was pitching a fit. And he made it, when he come through our room, he saw me and he made a beeline for me. Why? Because I was the only family that was there. Do you catch what I'm trying to say? We should be able, to, we, if we're going to continue to be a, a, a church that looks out for the interest of others and especially each other, 
that we don't need to forget that we're family. And then another term, and I'll move on, is the Bible says we're saints. We're saints. There's Saint Rod and Lisa sitting over and Saint Matt. They may not look saintly. They probably don't always act saintly. I don't either. But the Bible says they're saints. Romans 1.7 says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And that term saint means, really it means this, it means set apart. That's why we refer to God as being holy. He's set apart. He transcends us. And when God calls us to faith in Christ, we become saints because, listen, folks, God does not save us just so we can go to heaven. Now, that's a tremendous benefit. And the older I get, the the more happy I am about going there. But God saves us and sets us apart as his saints to be faithful followers of his, to make known the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus, to the community and the places we live. And we're set apart. We're saints. And so that's why we should look after each other, and that's why we should be one. Well, not only did Jesus know who he was, but Jesus knew what was required of him. Verse 7 says this, says, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now pay close attention to what this verse does not say and what it does say. There are some scholars who take that phrase, made himself nothing, and they say this. And some, some versions that, in fact, you, if you have a newer version of the ESV, instead of saying made himself nothing, it may be that way on the screen, it says emptied himself. And that's also what it says in the New American Standard. And some scholars take that phrase and they say this is what happened. They say when the Son of God came and was born of a virgin and took on flesh, he ceased to be God and he was just human. No. Absolutely not in a way that I could never teach or explain, but I accept it by faith because the Bible teaches it. The Son of God was at one time simultaneously human and God both. He, he had both the nature of man and he had both the nature of God. He had to. We could not have salvation if, if Jesus had not been totally man and totally God. The Bible tells us of God being human. We read verses about Jesus getting thirsty. We read verses about Jesus being tired and going to sleep. We read about Jesus weeping and crying and showing the emotions of human. He was totally man. But he was also totally God because we also read in those same gospel accounts where Jesus calmed the storm. He healed the sick. He made the blind to see, and most importantly, he forgave sin, which is only something that God could do. And it had to be that way. So what, is, so, so what, does, that, what does that phrase mean, he emptied himself or he became nothing? John Stott says it a whole lot better than I could. He says this, Jesus did not cling to the privileges of deity. He laid it aside. He could not retain it and at the same time fulfill his destiny to be God's Messiah and mediator. Listen to this. 
He emptied himself of his glory. Wow. The cost of the Son of God to do what was required for mine and your salvation meant that the eternal God had to leave all the glory, all the perfection of heaven, where around the clock continuously without stop, he was adored, he was praised, and the angels sing hallelujah to his name. And he, he was in all his glory. And he did not cease to be God, but he laid all that glory aside and took on flesh. And John says he tabernacled among us. And he took on humanity. And friend, in a way, I don't understand it. But the Bible says that this fully God, this fully man was tempted in this fallen world that he lived here. He was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted to sin. And yet not one time did he sin. Which brings me to our final point today in this passage. And by the way, let me back up and say this. What is the significance of that for us today? Well, here's the significance of the fact that Jesus emptied himself, folks. If you and I are going to be one, as Paul's desire was for the church at Philippi, and that should be the desire of safe haven. If we're going to be one, if we're going to be a church that looks out for the interest of others in unity and service, then the cost is we're going to have to empty ourselves. See, too many times today, church is about us. And, and, and I, I, I'll just lay it out there like it is. In so many churches, it's become, it's become more than... And rather than being about the glory of God, it's what can we do to pacify people to get them in. It's not about us, folks. I'm so glad that Matt made the remarks he had. Today is about the glory of God. Finally, Jesus had, not only did he know his identity, not only did he know what was required, but listen, he had the right motivation. Verse 8 says this. And being found in human form, that word form means essence. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, several times in the gospel, Jesus tells a parable about servants. And in just about every one of those parables, there's a contrast between a faithful servant and an unfaithful servant. And you know what the difference is in every case? The difference is the faithful servant obeys and the unfaithful servant disobeys. And our scripture says that Jesus was obedient. Who is he obedient to? He's obedient to his father. He actively obeyed his father by taking on flesh and being tempted in every way as we are. But in every case when Jesus was tempted to sin, he chose obedience to his father rather than that pull on him as a human to yield to sin. 
And he lived the life, the life of perfection that was required. See, some people say, if, you know, if Jesus just had to die for us, why didn't God just bring him into the world and then didn't let him die right off? Because that was not all that was required. See, sinners are under the law of God. Now, the law of God doesn't save us, but it shows us the need that we need, we need to be saved because we can't live it. But God never set his law aside. In fact, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but what? To fulfill it. And Jesus, in his perfect obedience, he dotted every I, crossed every T. He obeyed the Father in perfection so that he could be passively obedient and lay down his life on a Roman cross to be the substitute to take the punishment and the wrath of God that you and I deserve as sinners. There was no other way. I've heard preachers say, if I, if I had to come up with a plan of salvation, I believe I'd do something different. There is no other way. The only way a holy, righteous, perfectly just God could forgive sinners was for him to come and take on flesh and live what he demanded and then take our punishment for us. And Jesus did that by being obedient. Now I close with this question. And this is to me the most important part of today. And the most important part of this passage. What was it? What was it in the heart and the mind? What was it in the mind of Christ. That caused him to be obedient? What motivated him? What drove him to this obedience? Now, if you'd asked me that question for most of my Christian life, my response would have been this. That Jesus was obedient because he loved sinners. Now, I agree with you, and I indeed don't throw rocks at me until I get through. You can't take Romans 5, 8 out of the Bible, and thank the Lord you can't, because it says, for God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But folks, after studying this passage and thinking about it, prayer, and being considered, I've come to the conclusion, and I think the Bible will back it up, that it was not, even though His love for us is great, it was not love for you and I that motivated Jesus to be obedient. I want to close by looking at John chapter 17. And we'll finish up with this. And we're going to begin with verse 20. It may be up on the screen. John chapter 17 verse 20. John 17 records what's known as the Lord's high priestly prayer. In which he prays for his present disciples. And when he prays for you and I. Those disciples that are to come. And that's what verse 20 addresses Jesus prays this. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Listen to this. Here's Paul's request to us that we read early in Philippians. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, and listen to this, listen to this church, and love them 
even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you, listen to this, you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, listen to this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And I propose to you today, church, that the motivation that drove the Son of God to be obedient even to the point of death was the love that the Father had for the Son. And because Jesus knew how much His Father loved Him, He could not do anything else other than obey the Father's will. When he prayed those sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross and he was intense and he prayed that prayer, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. What also caused him to pray, nevertheless, not my will, but your will, was because he knew the Father and he knew how much the Father loved him. And he obeyed. And if you don't hear anything else today, if nothing else today is spoke to you, please go home with this church. That if you're going to be the church that you've been for these 10 years, if you're going to continue to serve this community and serve each other faithfully and look out for the interest of others, what will have to drive that motivation is to remember how much Jesus loves you. I won't be faithful. I won't finish the fight of faith. I won't finish the course. I will not be a faithful servant if it depends on my love for Jesus. Because my love is fickle. Often when I pray, especially in a group, I will pray, get out of here, Satan. <laughs> Often I will pray, Lord, I love you, but I don't love you like I should. And I pray that for a reason. Because I know my heart. And I know my love for Christ is not perfect and pure. Sometimes it's cold. Sometimes I don't want to love the Lord. But you know what? Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Not death, distress, any kind of heartbreak can separate me from the love that God has for me in Christ Jesus. Church, here's my charge to you, and I think it's the charge of Scripture. Look often. Go there frequently. Do whatever you have to do to keep your eyes on the cross of Jesus. And if you feel your heart slipping away, 
If you sense that you're beginning to get cold in your devotion to God, if you seem and it seems that you're losing your passion for Christ and your passion for service and your passion to serve others, and you get tired and weary, run back to the hill. Go back to the hill. Go to the hill and take time to pause and look at Calvary. And know that you can press on until it's time to go home. Not because you love Him so much, but behold what manner of love the Father has shown to you and I that we should be called the children of God. I want to close us in prayer today by asking God to continue to bless us. And after this prayer is over, the Lord's table is open. If you're here today and you're a follower and a believer of Jesus Christ and you've trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, regardless of your church, maybe you're not a member of this church, that's okay. You may be a member of a certain denomination. The table is open and welcome. And if you're here today and you never have trusted Christ, we would ask that you would refrain from taking the Lord's table because it's meant for God's children, His saints. But I would ask you in love to do this. If you're not a believer... Think about what the Lord's table represents. The cracker, the bread, represents the body of Christ that was broken on a cross for your sins. The juice that we take represents the blood of Christ that was shed on Calvary's cross in your behalf to make payment for your sin. And realize this, that those of us who are taken of the Lord's table we're just sinners. Just like we said earlier, we're just dirty, filthy sinners that were dead to God, had no concern for God. And in His love, when we couldn't come to Him, He came to us. And that same Jesus who lived and died and rose again is alive today. And if you've never trusted Him, know that He stands with open arms and wants you just to open your heart up to Him in simple, childlike faith. There's no magic words you have to pray. In fact, you don't even have to pray. All you need to do is let Him know in your heart, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I believe Christ died for me, and I want Him to be my Savior. And I can promise you based on the Word of God that the moment you put your faith and trust in Him, He will cleanse you of every sin you've ever committed. He will cleanse you of every sin you ever will commit, and He'll be a faithful God and Savior if you'll just let Him be Lord of your life. And when this life is over, you'll have an eternity and glory that's beyond description. Let's pray. Father God, how magnificent, how marvelous, how mighty is Your name, O Lord. Father, we praise you for this day of celebration. We thank you, Lord, that in the faith that our pastor's family took, in the faith of those who sensed your call to come be a part of this body, 
that in all of the mistakes that were made and all of the good decisions were made in the up times and the down times in every obstacle that was placed in front that you have been a faithful God and you have delivered when deliverance was needed you have personally Father placed each covenant partner in this body according to your pleasure and you have placed each one with different gifts different talents different skills but you have called this church to be one in unity and service to each other and to this community and father we ask today not because we deserve it but because we know how gracious and loving and faithful you are that in your steadfast love whether it be another 10 years or another 50 years or another 100 years till Jesus comes that Lord this would be your church united in heart and spirit and attitude to serve you Lord to serve one another and to serve those who are yet to come into the kingdom. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your obedience. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling our hearts and indwelling this body. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.